Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning. If you are new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as lead pastor here. And uh, once a year, and I've been doing this for the last 21 years now, I go out out on a week-long trip to meet with my brother and four of my oldest friends. We're all pastors. We all got saved around the same time. And we go away for a week to talk about ministry and life, to catch up with each other. And it's it's a really important week for me in my spiritual rhythm in my life. I don't know... Um, what my life would be like if I didn't have this week of just getting away, but not in escape, but in retreat to old relationships. And so one of the things that often happens is when I'm there, if I have to preach the Sunday after I get back, my mind is all over the place. And so I asked uh, somebody else to take the pulpit for me this morning. And so I reached out to our brother, Joseph Lim. Joseph, where are you? There you are. Okay. So I, I want to invite Joseph to just come on up. Um, you guys, some of you may know Joseph because he's come up with such energy and done the message for the kids. Um, he, you may not know this, he has a Master's of Divinity degree. He is an experienced pastor. He led a, an adult ministry for a long time. And I met Joseph in July of 2014 when I went to preach at a retreat put on by a number of churches together in Louisville, Kentucky. And he and I were standing outside in front of the dormitory in this little courtyard, and we had this long conversation, and I learned that Joseph was in transition out of the ministry he was serving and feeling a little bit at a loss as to what to do next. And I made the suggestion, it sounds like, brother, you could use a little rest, a little healing. Uh, Come and be a part of our church for a while and enroll in our school of ministry and see where the Lord takes you. And to my great surprise, he did it. A few months later, he and his wife were here in Chicago. I, I was really shocked. And so I really appreciate people who have that kind of bold view of life and of the kingdom, aren't messing around. And I think you have all experienced Joseph as a gifted communicator. I believe he has a heart for the Lord. I want to invite you to pray with me as I pray for him before he takes the pulpit. God, you've given Joseph a deep sense of conviction about this word. We believe that you have something to say to us as a church. And as Joseph speaks, we pray that you would speak. And as the word comes out and comes forth, we pray we would receive it as though it's coming from you. Change our lives and our hearts and our minds as your word ministers to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, funny story about that, uh, about that retreat that we had down in Louisville. Um, at that time, um, there, was, there was another, I don't know if you guys know the other Dave Lee, um, but there was another pastor, Dave Lee, that served at the other Harvest, at Harvest Bible Chapel. And so when it came time for us to, and, and he's somebody that, that I know, um, he, he came to our wedding, um, his wife and my wife are good friends, and, and so... When it came time to find a speaker for our joint summer retreat, um, they said, we know this guy, 
his name is Dave Lee. He's from Harvest in Chicago. And I go, oh, I know that guy. He's a good guy. And they go, okay, we'll bring him in. And so he gets off, you know, the airport and shows up. And I go, you're not bald. <laughs> and uh, so that, that is how we met. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I just think that's, uh, it's, it's amazing how God works in his timing. Um, and just the way that he orchestrates things. And, and my wife and I have had, had a wonderful time being here at Harvest, just being able to be members um, and, and just to enjoy the, the tutelage, the mentorship, and just the, the amazing family that's been here. And so I just want to thank you guys once again for giving me the opportunity um, to, to stand here on this pulpit slash music stand. And... Um, to preach to you all this morning. So if you guys could open up with me to, um, we're going to uh, start off in Luke chapter 2, but we're going we're gonna to stay in Hebrews chapter 4 for the majority of it. But if you could, if you could go over to Luke chapter 2 for me real quick first. Um, okay, nice, awesome. All right, um, so uh, for those of you guys that know me, um, I really enjoy uh, comic books. I'm not, I'm not much of a comic book connoisseur. I wouldn't be able to name all the random comic book trivia that, that some of you probably can. But I definitely very much enjoy it. Um, and, and I'm a huge fan uh, of, of DC comics. I love Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. I love those characters. Um, but I really got to give it to Marvel in terms of what they have been able to accomplish in the movies. I, I just think what they've done is amazing to put comic books back in Main Street Market and things. So it, it's been a lot of fun. But one of the things I enjoy most about comic books and comic book characters is looking at their origin stories. Kind of where did these characters come from? How they went about um, discovering their powers, if that was something that they were developed, or maybe if they were from another planet, how they dealt with um, um, just uh, growing to understand being in a different culture and being so completely different from everybody else around them. I, I think those origin stories are just fascinating. And I don't know if you guys ever did this growing up, but when you start growing up and you're reading about these superheroes and these comic books and you get lost in these worlds, you start to fantasize a little bit about what kind of comic book hero you would be, right? Or what kind of superpowers you would have. And, and there are certain things that I think make for good story, right? Uh, a lot of times the person who is just completely overpowered, um, and has every superpower in the world, doesn't always make for the most interesting of stories, because, you know, there's just like one punch and everything is over, okay? So they usually go with comedic effect or something else like that, but they don't, there's not much like a build-up in drama and, and this little climax, because, you know, they're just too powerful. But um, if I fantasize about what kind of hero I would be, I don't really care about what makes a good story, about what makes a good climax, and what makes a good resolution. I want to have every superpower in the world. And I imagine if I was writing my own origin story, I would skip the whole, like, struggle section. I think I would come in right around, you know, 25 years old, and I would come... um, you know, maybe a little bit taller than I was now. I think I'd have the face of, like, George Clooney and, like, the body of Brad Pitt from Troy. And, and man, I would, I would create such a, a presence the moment that I came on the scene, you know? It's not just about flying and telekinesis and all of that. Um, I think I would just go ahead and rewrite all the history books 
You know, I would go back through history and every single evil villain that was there, I'd go and meet Hitler and I'd scissor kick him in the solar plexus. You know, I'd go find Kim Jong-un and I Superman laser him in the eyes and I go find Stalin and I just, I don't know. There's all kinds of things I would do. I think the history books would be probably very simple. I think your history classes in high school and growing up probably would be the most simplest things in the world because it would be, you know, World War I happened and Joseph A. just Superman laser mined everybody in the face, or B, he scissor kicked everybody in the face, or C, um, he just spoke and everything stopped. And then the next chapter, that would be it. And then the next chapter would be something along the lines of somewhere in the world, there was a bad guy who thought about some doing something bad, and then he remembered the name of Joseph. The end. Right? It wouldn't be a very interesting story, but that's how I, I, I just imagined what my origin story would be like. But when I think about the one person in all of history who actually had every superpower available to him, who had all authority in heaven and on earth, and I look at his human origin story, it is very different from anything that I would have written for myself. You know, when you look at Luke chapter 2, it is anything but strong and noteworthy and powerful. I mean, read this story for me with me real quick. Luke chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I don't know if you know anything about how the culture worked back then, but um, these two kids, because that's what they were, a lot of times... Kids got married, girls in that time, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. And Joseph is probably 16, 17, no older than that, right? So these kids, right, come from uh, a town of Nazareth, okay? Um, Went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. I want you to give you a little context of why Luke here has to explain not only the city but the town. You see, because if I tell you, right, there's this... People, they're visiting Harvest, they're from New York City, they're from Tokyo, they're from Seoul, right? They're from L.A. Everybody knows exactly what that city is. Everybody has heard of those places, right? But if I tell you we've got a couple here visiting Harvest from Lynchville, or Boondocksville, or Hillbilly Land, there's nobody who knows what any of those towns mean, right? And so here the author of Luke is saying, okay, there's this town called Nazareth in this place called Galilee. There's a couple here, a couple teenagers, uh, kind of from a town in the middle of nowhere. And and at the time in that small town that's probably not that much bigger than the the neighborhood here of Harvest, right, or the community here, um, when they came up in that time, they probably weren't that educated either, Right? These not, were not the scholars of that time. They're not the high priests. These are not people who are doing very prestigious work that are recognized. It's just two average kids. Probably couldn't read from a town in the middle of nowhere. And they show up, 
right? Because God has orchestrated something to happen, right? They show up in this town called Bethlehem. And when they get there, right, um, they're in a time period in their relationship where they were betrothed, which a lot of times uh, the betrothal period would last probably about a year long before the wedding ceremony where they're committed in a relationship, but it's a time for, for sexual purity where there's not much interaction between these two people, right? And then one year later, they come back and they celebrate with a huge wedding feast. And, and for that time period, for someone to be found pregnant, right, out of wedlock is pretty much what it is, would have been a very difficult situation. Because I can't imagine that in a, in a crowd about this big, that that's something you can really hide. It, you can't. You can only hide that for so long. So I imagine, and, and it's also not the kind of thing that you can go around and saying, you know, guys, I promise, we've been very sexually pure. There's this invisible thing out there that you can't speak to, that you can't see, that you can't touch, that you, most of you can't even communicate with. That's the thing that got me pregnant. Right? I think the, the probably she has to pick between uh, being a psychotic person and, and being, you know, a... a yes. <laughs> Her, she doesn't have very many good choices here. So I can't imagine that the time period that they're in in their relationship was anything but extremely difficult. I imagine that there's a lot of shame, a lot of whispering going on, a lot of rumors, Right? Just as there would be a lot of rumors if one of the middle schoolers here got pregnant. Regardless of the situation, I'm pretty sure people would talk about it. Okay? And I'm pretty sure people talked about it then. So we got two kids, teenage kids, from the town in the middle of nowhere, probably uneducated, going through a very emotionally difficult time in their lives. And they get to this city to do a census. And when they finally get there, right, uh, I don't know if they got there late or if they're just, it's just a busy time. But there is no place for them to stay. No place for them to stay. And they go and they go to the, the manager at the end and they tell him, hey, uh, we just need a place uh, for a couple nights so that we can get this thing registered and we can get out of here. I said, I'm sorry, there's not a place. We, we're all 100% full, booked to capacity. We're booked through next week. Because isn't there anything you can do for me? I mean, my wife is pregnant. She's been pregnant for a long time. Could, the baby could be due at any time. He's, you know, I'm sure the manager's trying to figure something out. And he goes, you know what? Um, here's what I can do for you. I don't have a room for you. But you're going to have to put your donkey somewhere um, in the stables. And uh, there's, I know there's some extra room in there. If you don't mind you know, staying in there, that's the absolute best thing that I can do for you. Right? And I know that a lot of times when we look at these wonderful manger scenes, something like this, right? You've got their halos around their head, and it's all sanitary and super clean, and you've got God's light shining down upon them. And, but I imagine the reality of the situation was something very different from this picture. You see, because stables, right, are where they keep their traveling animals, okay? They're donkeys. It's an inn, so people travel, donkeys, camels, whatever, and, and I can't imagine that room service is as good in a stable as it is in other places. 
So I, I don't think that they came in there, you know, every couple hours and said, hey, let me scoop up and swipe down this, this, this turd for you and let me bleach the floors and give you some clean blankets. I mean, I'm pretty sure that place was nasty. Just, I don't know if you guys have ever done any work on a farm or anything like that, but it's, it's gross, you know? Um, like, we recently got guinea pigs and um, we got two of them. And I swear to God, they must poop their body weight every morning and evening. Like, we scoop it up morning and evening, and it's just like every time I come back, I'm like, what? <laughs> how did you guys eat so much? And I can't imagine, right, uh, 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 an animal that is at least a hundred times bigger than that, right, the amount of, of turd that just gets built up in that place, right? It's disgusting. And that's the place that Jesus goes, right? Um, If I were to put this in a modern equivalent, it is pretty much no different, right, than, again, a teenage couple um, out of wedlock, pregnant, uneducated, from the town in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus is born not not even in in a clinic, but pretty much in a parking lot and placed in a used oil pan. I think that's the image that we have here. There is nothing in this picture that says king or savior or messiah. Everything about this picture is, let's just be real, it's pathetic. And it is sad. Right? If anybody in the U.S. were born in conditions like this, their parents would be put in jail for neglect. Right? This is not something that we get. And I look at a picture like this and I say, God, I say, Jesus, you in all of your power, able to orchestrate every little detail of every plan. Why would you choose to come here on earth like this? And I think one of the reasons why he does that is from the very beginning, he wants to set the record straight on what it means to be a human being. You see, when we look at our passage in Hebrews, um, Hebrews 4, chapter 15 describes Christ this way. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, there's a couple things about what it means to be human. All right? And I want to I talk a little bit about this, this just idea of weakness first. Because it's, I think it's something that we get confused all the time. All right? Weakness, as described in Scripture, means a couple different things. Okay? Um, oftentimes it means incapacity or infirmity. You know, it's the most common used word in the New Testament for just physical illness, but it's also used for words like for poverty, right? It refers to just generally any kind of physical, psychological, spiritual limitations. And yes, Christ limited himself when he became a human being, right? Weakness is a state of being less than, in some respect, either less than some some ideal or less than the best of which humanity is capable 
or less than what is typical for normal human beings. And so inferior in some respect to most other people. You know, this is something important because I think a lot of times we get very, very confused as to what weakness means. And, and when I first, you know, even have, as I put up the title there, Are You a Weakling? Most of us, when we look at that, have a very negative reaction to a word like that. Even the concept or the idea of weakness. Now, I'm, going to spend, I'm spending a lot of time just kind of going over these definitions and things because um, it's important. Now, there was two kids, uh, I'm going to tell you a story, um, two kids, a brother and sister, um, and, and I would never do this because, you know, I'm not this mean, but uh, two kids growing up, and, and as many siblings do, they get into a fight, you know, and they start calling each other all kinds of goofy, childish names and saying all kinds of ridiculous things like, hey, you're just, you're just a complete idiot, yeah? Well, you're a garbage face, is that so? Well, your face is used to wipe other people's butts, <laughs> Is that so? Well, you ain't nothing but a cotton-headed ninny-muggin. Oh, yeah, well, well, then I, <laughs> I fart in your general direction because your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. And you go, well, what are you talking about right now? Because your mother is my mother and my, my father is your father. And the sister goes back and goes, well, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks right back on you. And the brother, in kind of exasperation, goes, oh, I got it, I got it. Looks at his sister and says, oh, yeah? She goes, yeah, what you got? She goes, well, you. You're a virgin. I am not a virgin! And I think Satan does the same thing to us a lot of times. Because he looks at you and I and he says, you, you are a weakling. You are so weak. And our gut reaction to a word like that is to come back and say, I am not a weakling. And he goes, oh yeah? Well then prove it. Prove it to the world. Everybody that's watching you. Prove it to the people that you work with. Prove it to your family and your friends. Most of all, prove it to yourself. And I think that's what most of us, I think, spend so much of our time and energy doing, is trying to prove to the world that we are not weak, that we are strong, that we are better. We spend so much money on trying to improve things that I don't think have very much eternal significance. You see, because when God looks at the weak, I don't think he looks at the weak the same way that the world does. You see, the world looks at people who think of themselves as somehow limited or less than, and they see an opportunity for profit. But you see, when the world, when God looks at the disadvantaged, at the weak, at the limited, here's what Scripture describes in some of these places. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, it says, When you reap your harvest in the field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, he says, don't go pick it up. He says, leave it. It shall be for the alien, which is the foreigner, for the orphan or for the widow. 
In Psalm 82, it says, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hands of the wicked. You see, because when God looks at the disadvantaged, when God looks at the weak, he sees something to be cared for, something to be protected, something to be rescued. You know, that's different from, very, very different from the way that he views sin. Sin is something that he hates. Sin is something that he, he works to eliminate. It's the same response that we should have. And so when we look at that and we look at Christ's relationship to sin and weakness, it's also the same thing. I think that when Christ came to earth in that weak and pathetic setting, I think one of the things he was trying to show us was saying, this right here, this is being human. Because what Hebrews tell us is that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin. And those two are very different things, and sometimes we treat them as if they're not. We get those things confused. And so when we look at that, I mean, I mean, just look at that story again in Luke. When it says that he placed, his, his parents placed him um, in swaddling cloths and then put him down in that manger. I don't know if you guys know what swaddling cloths are, but pretty much all it is is, is back in the day, they used to believe that if they didn't tightly, tightly wind up that baby in that cloth and keep their bones set in, that when they were first born, their bones were too loose and too wiggly and they would get all grown out of shape and things if they didn't wrap him up really tight. We know that that's, that's ridiculous and that's actually not the case. But I don't think Jesus came out of the womb and be like, hold up, Mother Mary. My bones are fine. I don't need them swaddling cloths. See, I don't think that he grew up with his father, Joseph, who was a carpenter. And as, as his father was teaching him a, a thing or two about his trade, and, and one day when, when Jesus was old enough, as he took him out into his workshop and said, Son, grab one of those tools. I'm going to show you today how to use a saw. And he grabs that saw and he says, Here's how you hold it. Here's how you hold this piece of wood so that you uh, are, are safety. You can't, you're not going to cut off your fingers. And the next thing you know, he turns around and Joseph uh, and Jesus has turned the wood to stone and built the great pyramids of Egypt. I don't think it worked like that. I think Jesus probably did make some mistakes as he's learning the, tr- the tools of the trade from his father. I think he had to learn things and to grow. And I think sometimes we get confused because we hate those things. You know, I think this is what... This is what um, you know, something that Paul understood. You know, because as we think about our relationship to weakness and to sin, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this in verse 7, it says, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, one of the things that Paul understood very well was that to be strong in the human sense, to be independent in the way that the world teaches us is a, is a good end goal to have. Paul understood meant being cut off from Christ. He realized that it was the very thing that he didn't enjoy that brought him closer to Christ. You know, it was like, um, I remember growing up uh, when I was a kid, um, right by our church, there was a really, really large field of super, super tall grass. And I was in elementary school, maybe third or fourth grade. And, and we would play out in the fields. We'd run around outside. Um, I don't know if kids do that these days, but we would run around outside and, and we would play tag out in the tall grass, and the grass was taller than us. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It wasn't a lot of space, but you had to, like, find people, and you would run around. And I remember the first time we did that, um, I came out of that field with a whole bunch of, like, grass cuts. And I found out that day that I have an allergic reaction to grass cuts. And so that I start to break out in hives, like, all over me, my whole body, because I've just spent, like, 20 minutes, like, running through grass that's taller than me. And, and I come back afterwards, and I'm all itchy and miserable, and I come to my parents, and they, like, freak out because I'm all blotchy, and it's all over the place, everywhere you could see. And so they rush me over to the emergency room. And, um, you know, hospitals are terrifying places. They're just, yeah. But uh, I, they, I, you go out into the emergency room, and you wait there for a little bit because, you know, I'm not, hopefully not life-death situation. Eventually, you get called into the doctor's office. And the doctor looks at, you know, I go in with my mom and my dad waits out in the, in the waiting room. And he looks at, you know, says, okay, this is going to be okay. I'm just going to give you a, a, some kind of shot. I have no idea what kind of shot. And pulls out this giant needle, freaking the size of my arm. At least that's the way that it looks like to me when you're in third grade. Like, he's going to stab me. <laughs> he's trying to stab me with that. And so I flip out and I run out of that room. I run down the hall and I jump into my dad's arms. He goes, it's all right, son. And then he stands up. And slowly starts walking back towards the evil man that wants to stab me in the face. And all of a sudden, the, the look of comfort and, 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 and peace on my face turns to horror as I cry out, Daddy, why? You see, because the thing that my third and fourth year old brain could not understand was that the thing that I hated and feared the most was the very thing that was going to keep me healthy, perhaps even save my life. And the point of this sermon is not just to, you know, make a theological distinction between two definitions of a word. I think it's to point us out to the fact that We live our lives with these two categories so many times just mixed up. And and it's one of those things that, um, you know, when Christ looks at us and he looks at um, weakness, right? Weakness is something that God intentionally 
has created within us. It is not a result of the fall. Right? It's something that he created in us, something that God cares about, something that we're not responsible for, but it's created in us because it points to us a need for something greater than which we are capable of providing for ourselves. You know, sin, on the other hand, is something from the fall, something which God hates, for which we are responsible and must resist. And Christ, as we look at Hebrews, is one who sympathizes with us in all of our weakness. Right? But it's one of those things, um, I think sometimes we can easily get confused here. Because it's easy to think that when we say Christ can sympathize with us in all of our weakness, to look in God and say, he doesn't know what I'm going through. He's never experienced what it feels like to get caught in a lie. Jesus never had cancer. Jesus never went through a divorce. And to some extent, those things are true. Jesus hasn't physically experienced those things. But I think C.S. Lewis has, a, has an interesting way of putting it. Right? He says, a silly idea is current. That good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full, uh, to the full what temptation really means. The only complete realist. What I mean by that, right, what I think what he means by that, is, is somebody, you know, and I get this sometimes, like, um, if you lift weights, right, and, and you bench, I don't know, 300 pounds, okay? It's like somebody who's just started out in lifting, who can only bench 120 pounds, looking at you and saying, you have no idea how hard this is, what I am struggling with. And that's a ridiculous statement. Why? Because... The person who lifts 300 pounds got there because they were able to surpass the struggle of lifting 120, 150, 200, 250 pounds in order to get to the place where they could lift the 300 pounds. And so they understand the temptation that comes before that to give up and say no. And I think what C.S. Lewis is trying to point out here is saying, is not to say, you're right, Jesus Christ may not have gone through every single one of the experiences that you have gone through. But do you remember what he went through on the cross? Do you remember what he was like when he was a human being? Because when Christ came as a human being, he showed us what it meant to be the perfect human being. To have the temptations, the limitations, and to not give in to sin. That's who we have in Christ. And so when we learn from that, right, a couple of things that we want to take, 
is this. If there's a couple things that we could take out from this, I would hope that as we be able to make a distinction between these two ideas of weakness and sin, that we would treat them differently. For example, when I grew up, um, my parents had a very big issue with the fact that I'm short. <laughs> a really, really, really big problem with this. You know, they, they, just, they, they felt like if I was taller, that I would be able to have a better presence in a room and that people would treat me differently. And they so desperately wanted me to be taller. And so one day they took me to a doctor. Um, they took me to a doctor who was supposed to make me taller. And so he looked at me. He ran all kinds of tests, did all kinds of like put some electrodes on me and ran electricity and did body fat percentage stuff and just all kinds of things. And at the end of this exam, he made the conclusion that I was too fat. I was maybe about five, ten pounds more than I weigh right now. And he said, you're so fat that your fat is weighing down your bones. And that's why you can't grow. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to put on some sweatpants, put on a sweatshirt, and not drink any water for an hour. Then I want you to run three miles... And then don't drink any water for another hour. And I want you to do this five days a week. And then you're going to lose some weight, and you're going to shoot right up, and you're going to go tall. And he said, and the other thing is, you need to exercise, because you're weak. You're not very strong. You're not very fit. I said, oh, yeah? He says, yeah. So we're going to go to the other room, and I'm going to show you how to do some push-ups. I said, okay, let's go do some push-ups. And um, little did he know that at this time I'm training for the army, so I could do 92 push-ups in a minute. <laughs> and so he goes into the other room, and we start doing push-ups together. We do 10. We do 20. He starts slowing down, maybe about 30. Puts his knees down, and he stops. So I keep going. I get a little faster. I switch to one hand. <laughs> and he looks at my parents and goes, oh, your son is pretty strong. That's an example of some, a time when uh, my parents, they loved me. They loved me so much. And I, I think they really did want the best for me. But it was a time in my life in which they, they treated a limited, just human characteristic and treated it as if it were a sin. Something that needed to be eradicated. You know? And, and it took them years to apologize for that. And they, they did eventually. And, and I'm very grateful for that. And... Um, but I don't know if they've really learned from it because they've changed their advice. They've, they've accepted the fact that I won't ever be tall. So they said, if you can't grow this way, you might as well grow this way. <laughs> because at least if you're fat, then you'll still take up space in the room and people have to notice you. <laughs> uh, and I think there's some humor in that as well. But um, it was one example of a time where they, they treated something, a humid limitation, just the way in which we were created... And made me feel like I had sinned, like I had done something wrong. And so it needed to be eradicated because what do you go to the doctor for? You go to the doctor for illness, something that has to be corrected, right? And a lot of times I want to ask ourselves, do we do that with ourselves or our own kids? You know, because if every single one of our kids could get straight A's, 
they would change the grading system. Somebody's got to get a D. <laughs> it's just how the curve works, right? Somebody got to, you know, not every one of our kids is going to be that great at sports. Somebody's got to get cut so that some teams can win and some teams can lose. It's just a way of things, right? Not everybody is going to have super amazing social skills. Not everybody is going to look like a model. Not everyone is going to grow up to be super wealthy. You see, the example that I gave is pretty cut and dry, right? Something that they treated as a sin that's a, a, clearly a limitation. As we get more into life, those things start to intersect. I'm not so naive as to believe that sin and weakness are always two completely different categories. I understand that they mesh. For example, when I got bad grades, part of it was just the limitations of my brain. But a much larger part of it was just the fact that I was lazy and I procrastinated. Laziness is a sin. It's okay to recognize that. But I think we also need to recognize when the people in our lives have done their due diligence and tried their best and came up a little bit short of what the world defines as good enough. I think we need to look at ourselves and find times when you've done what you need to do when you have brought something before the Lord and in good conscience did the best that you could and came up a little bit short. I think those are times, right? Things that God has intentionally put in our lives so that we don't get so big-headed, so independent that we forget that true joy is not found in the things that the world promises us, but in the things that God promises us. And that's something easy to forget. I think vice versa, though, the flip side is easy to make that distinction and, 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 and confuse. Because when I look at certain things, you know, I grew up, when, when I did um, my MDiv, my concentration was in counseling. So, you know, they look at, like, um, family of origin type of things and personality tests. And, and I, I think there's a lot of good things to be gained from personality tests, right? There are. But I want you to think about the category of introvert and extrovert for just a moment, okay? Because those are categories that the world defines as equally acceptable and good, and that's just who you are, and that's just the way you got to live. And that's okay. There are certain ways in which people define those things that I'm totally fine with. What I have an issue with is when I look at Scripture and I look at the way that that Scripture defines the kinds of people that we are supposed to be. That we are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ into a foreign land. That we are supposed to be his witnesses, making disciples from our city, our neighborhood, our county, our state, our country, and to the ends of the earth. That we are supposed to be the salt and light of the world. That we are supposed to go out and find the lost and preach his word. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
when I look at those types of descriptions for a, what, a, what a truly believing person who is living their life for Christ looks like, I can't help but believe that that fits in the category of what many of us would describe as extroverts. And sometimes we use those labels and say, I'm an introvert and my gift is not evangelism. And so I'm going to leave evangelism to the people that are extroverts and really good at that. And I am going to do something else, something that I'm comfortable with. And we use those labels to cover up, I just think, fear and, and a lot of times sin. And I think where the world wants to redefine sin as different personality types or differences in views, especially in the post-truth culture that we live in now. And Christ wants to hold that distinction, to say that, to treat it for what it is, to call it what it is. And I don't think the world holds the same categories that we do. And so if I could challenge you guys for a moment um, to think a little bit about what are the things in my own life, what are the things in my own personality that I am ashamed of? Perhaps it's, it's I don't know, my income, my social personality. It's the way that I look or a certain aspect of the way that I look or my intellect What are some things that I am ashamed of that perhaps God has created within me that are not sins, but things that were put in my life so that I would learn to rely on other people and to rely on most of all on God himself? Because God recognizes that the thing that we need most in life is not to rely on yourself, it's to rely on him. You know, to share just a little bit more about myself, if I'm going to bring this home a little bit. You know, one of the weaknesses that, he, that I think also led to, to sinful thoughts for me. You know, when I first came to this church, and I was right before that, my wife and I, we were applying to many different places. We got offers from a couple different churches. And we decided together not to take any of those offers because we decided we needed to take a step back from ministry, and, and I especially just needed a little bit more mentorship, and I needed to grow a little bit. Um, but I had a resume that, gosh, blew most of my colleagues out of the water. And so it was, it was, a, it was, a, um, it was a humbling thing. When everyone was expecting me to do something great in ministry, to, to take a step back and say, no. I think I need to grow a little bit more. I think I need to learn and to come here. And one of the most, I guess, difficult things I think I heard, you know, when, pe- when I came and introduced myself to people here, and I think anybody that said this, if you said this to me, um, I, I, I very much understand that you did not mean it to be a hurtful thing. Um, and then people meant to be very helpful and welcoming. But I would tell people, you know, like, yeah, uh, I, I, we just finished up seminary. We just got married. Uh, we're taking a break from ministry, and we came here. And they'll be, oh, we have a lot of people like you here. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, thank you. You lump me on with all the other people that you believe are failed pastors. Um, 
But you know, that, that stuck with me a little bit. And even this week as I was preparing, it was one of the temptations I had to resist to say, to think about, rather than, God, what is it, what is the word that you want me to preach? But to think rather about, oh, this is the first time that these people are going to hear me preach. I want to make a strong first impression. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be that weak guy that had to stop ministry and come to a place and just be a lay person for a little while. I don't want, to, I don't want people to think of me that way. I want people to think of me as a well-spoken, as an articulate person that knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to like sprinkle in random Greek words in there. I'm going to put culturally relevant jokes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring it home and, and, and put something that will really speak to people's hearts so that I can be remembered, so that I can be noticed. And you see, that's, I think, the very thing that Jesus was trying to show me not to do. From the very moment he was born, he was saying, this is the way that the world defines your worth. These are the things that the world says that will get you noticed, that will get you to be remembered. And he's saying that's not the point. In fact, I've intentionally put those weaknesses in you so that you wouldn't be independent, so that you would need me. And so this is a message that speaks to me just as much as I hope that it speaks to you. I want to challenge us this morning to throw out pointless shame over weaknesses that are not sin. I want to challenge you to not cause other people in our families and in our communities to feel shame over things that are simply human. And to place a category in our minds for the difference between sin and weakness so that we can rightly tackle sin for what it is, for something that God hates and for something to be resisted and for us to embrace our weaknesses as the thing that God has gifted us to point us back to him. Because I can tell you right now that that is not the way that I grew up being taught how to think about my limitations. And what kind of community could we be here at Harvest if every single one of us learned to embrace one another's weaknesses because in our weaknesses we could boast in Christ because as we became weak, Christ shined ever more brightly in our lives. That it became clear that in all the things that Harvest accomplishes that everybody in the world would know that it wasn't because we had great infrastructure that we had great strategic planning meetings that because we used our finances well and we were really smart about the way that we planned but because in all the things that we did we had a bunch of weak broken human beings that let Christ shine through and that we would boast in that what kind of message would that share to the world? I, I, I get excited about things like that. I get excited about thinking about the impact that we could meet in the family dynamic of our worlds. And families are something that I, I care very much about. Because in so many places in our country, families are falling apart. And one of the big things I definitely think that in the Asian culture is a big 
misunderstanding in the distinction between weakness and sin. And so as we pray together, I just want to challenge us that God perhaps may open up our eyes to see us, see each other the way that he sees us. So let us pray. Um, Dear God, I thank you for this day. I thank you once again for this opportunity to come here before you to hear your word preached. And God, I pray that as we look at our lives, as we look at what it means to be a human being, Lord, that we would not get caught up in the definitions of the world, that we would not listen to the voice of the enemy that points an accusing finger at us and calls us weaklings, that we would not run from that. That we would not spend so much of our time and our money and our energy trying to be strong as defined by the world. But that we would be able to come to you. That we would be able to embrace our limitations, our weaknesses, our illnesses, our poverty in so many areas of our life. And see these things as God-given gifts created within our humanity that we may learn to rely on you. That we may learn to depend on you. I pray that Paul's boast in 2 Corinthians may be our cry. That we may boast all the more in our weaknesses because when we are weak, Christ You are strong. So God, let us be less so that you may continue to be more in each and every one of our lives. We pray these things in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.